It should be known that history, in matter of fact, is information about human social organization, which is itself identical with world civilization. It deals with such conditions affecting the nature of civilization as, for instance, savagery and sociability, group feelings, and the different ways by which one group of human beings achieve superiority over another. It deals with royalty and the dynasties that result in this manner and with the various ranks that exist within them. It further deals with the different kinds of gainful occupations and ways of making a living with the sciences and crafts that human beings pursue as part of their activities and the efforts, and with all the other institutions that originate in civilization through its very nature. So we already have something quite a bit more comprehensive in uh, his idea of history than we might find in notions of history and narratives of history, even in you know contemporary times where history is dealt with usually wars and battles and who is the king of this country or the president of that country and so forth. And he is actually now looking at a lot of what we might consider the everyday, day-to-day features of life, the ways of making a living, the sciences and crafts. So really looking at all the things that make uh, human life, collective human life operate. The next paragraph, he gets right to something else interesting and important. Untruth naturally afflicts historical information. There are various reasons that make this unavoidable. One of them is partisanship for opinions in schools. If the soul is impartial in receiving information, it devotes to that information the share of critical investigation the information deserves, and its truth or untruth thus becomes clear. However, if the soul is infected with partisanship for a particular opinion or sect, It accepts without a moment's hesitation the information that is agreeable to it. Prejudice and partisanship obscure the critical faculty and preclude critical investigation. The result is that falsehoods are accepted and transmitted. You know, now people talk about the post-truth era, right? And uh, the problem of fake news and echo chambers and so forth. But that doesn't seem like uh, from this that it's a very new problem something that Ibn Khaldun was well aware of. And maybe even more so than us, because we only uh, generally start talking about this recently because of you know social media and the internet and the idea that social media is allowing so many alternative platforms for disseminating or broadcasting information in different sides of the story so people really don't know which to believe anymore, as opposed to a previous situation where Every country or government basically, uh, you know, had just a few different news stations, uh, either controlled by the government or controlled by a few corporations, right? Depending on what kind of a system of government that you have, right? What kind of a system of managing information is involved. But in any case, there will be a received reported version of history or a reported version of, you know, current events, which everybody considers to be reliable and refers to as the benchmark on information. And now uh, people don't have such a benchmark. So we have the problem of what they call the problem of fake news. Yeah. But here, uh, Ibn Khaldun is is recognizing even that the received information is oftentimes afflicted with untruth because of partisanship. 
the things that we would normally consider to be often uh, the reliable sources. But for the same reason, right, prejudice and partisanship, or it's interesting how he put it, if the soul is infected with the partisanship for a particular opinion or sect, it accepts without a moment's hesitation the information that is agreeable to it. So this partisanship is described as an infection, as kind of a disease that the soul might have. It keeps it from being able to critically investigate and reflect on the information. And so Ibn Khaldun really does believe that it's possible to ascertain the truth about things. If he did not, I don't think he would consider that partisanship to be an infection, uh, because if you can't ascertain the truth about things anyway, then, you know, the inability to do so is not an infection. It's just, you know, the inevitable condition. So he really does think that it's possible through critical investigation to ascertain the truth about history. But of course, that requires us to ask, what prevents us from doing that? And one of the things is partisanship. Another reason making truth unavoidable in historical information is reliance upon transmitters. He says, investigation of this subject belongs to the theological discipline of personality criticism. You know, that's the, the field related to Hadith, where in the pursuit of authenticating or examining the isnad of a Hadith, they will have a biography of each person, who each transmitter of the Hadith, and sort of establish that person's reliability as a transmitter, or they may attack the person's reliability as a transmitter. And I think it's not an accident that Ibn Khaldun puts this statement right after the previous one. Because as we noted before, a lot of this activity of personality criticism, as it's called here, was going on during the sectarian debates between Sunni and Shia. So each side had their own group of people, which they considered to be reliable transmitters. And uh, one side had a, a lot fewer on its list than the other, right? But in the end, it's uh, a lot of times motivated, right, by this sort of um, sectarian uh, argumentation and debate. So I think he's kind of alluding to the sense that partisanship may have infected uh, that science and make it unreliable. A little bit more interesting. Another reason is unawareness of the purpose of an event. Many a transmitter does not know the real significance of his observations or of the things he has learned about orally. He transmits the information, attributing it to it the significance he assumes it or imagines it to have. The result is falsehood. What we sometimes uh, refer to as when something's lost in translation, or let's say you visit a, another country or another culture, or you may even just be communicating with some people in a situation that you don't fully understand. And because you don't fully understand the situation, then your um, way of talking or something that you say may mean something different in that situation than what you take it to mean. In which case you end up, uh, you know, maybe committing a faux pas or uh, making yourself misunderstood. Um, and this is just a matter of misinterpreting how or what the significance of a thing is in a different culture.
So we can apply that to history and imagine going back in time like a thousand years and seeing things around you, you would probably misinterpret them or you may do things that would cause people to misinterpret you simply because you're completely unaware of the, the way things are interpreted in the context. You know, sometimes I've, I remember people asking us to imagine archaeologists 5,000 years from now digging up our houses and stuff, and um, they would see that every house has like a TV right in the middle of the living room and all the chairs are like pointed to the TV and stuff. And they would say, wow, these people must have, it must have been their religion. Maybe they, that was like their, their idol or their God, you know, and they worship this and everybody has it in their house and they always like face it and stuff. So that would be, you know, kind of a misinterpretation of what this, what the TV is or what the significance is of the arrangement of the furniture in the house around the TV uh, because of applying what we expect from another context. And that, of course, is like the context where we see in religious buildings or even in houses of people where they do have kind of religious icons that they put them in central places and then they face them and sort of, you know, put them in places where your attention is drawn to them all the time. So when we see that the television is in the same kind of arrangement in a, in a living room, archaeologists that we're imagining might think, okay, then, you know, this must be their idol. This must be their God, right? And then they would have not understood, right, the actual thing that they're observing because they don't understand the context. Maybe that was a helpful example. Michal Dun's going to give us some later. Some real concrete examples that he thinks are instances of historians misinterpreting uh, the significance of events. One of the things he talks about is the difference between the religious scholar of his time and the, and the religious scholar in the early days of Islam. He says, we hear stories about the Sahaba and we don't understand that these were religious scholars, but they didn't work for an institution. They weren't professional religious scholars. It wasn't their kind of paid job. Instead, they were actually, you know, merchants and warriors and leaders, and they just had learned a lot about religion. So they taught people about it but they were having their own jobs and they were participants in life in other ways in their own right. And that's why they were dynamic people. And he says later, you know, uh, when the Muslims founded these big institutional dynasties, governments began to hire special, you know, people whose job, whose only job was to learn about religion. And that's all they did. And they were paid by the government. They were paid by the rulers. So they were not really the same type of leading type of person. They were just paid scholar whose job was to talk about religion and give the khutbah and stuff like that. So sometimes he says now these guys who have these jobs here in our time, they hear these stories about the guys who lived in the old days and they think that they're like them and that they should try to be like them. So they try to like start a religious Islamic revolution against the ruler or something and they want to be like the ruler the way the guys in the past rulers, but they don't understand that they're not anything like them, and that the idea of a religious scholar in our time and in our context is totally different from the idea of a religious scholar and the meaning and significance of the religious scholar in those old days. That was an example of this that he gives. Another reason is unfounded assumption as to the truth of a thing 
This is frequent. It results mostly from reliance upon transmitters, right? So he thinks that we oftentimes believe something is the case without any good reason, simply because we have it in a report. So he seems to be pretty critical about this reliance upon transmitters. Another reason is ignorance of how conditions conform with reality. Conditions are affected by ambiguities and artificial distortions. The informant reports the conditions as he saw them, but on account of artificial distortions, he himself has no true picture of them. It's interesting. Right? That goes back to the reliance on transmitters, right? Every transmission comes from an initial reporter, and there are conditions present, right, which will determine how that person perceives what he sees and how he reports them, and that viewpoint may not be accurate. Another reason is the fact that people, as a rule, approach great and high-ranking persons with praise and encomiums. They embellish conditions and spread the fame of great men. The information made public in such cases is not truthful. Human souls long for praise, and people pay great attention to this world and to the positions and wealth it offers. As a rule, they feel no desire for virtue and have no special interest in virtuous people. That's self-explanatory. A lot of flattery goes on. And basically, we're talking about propaganda. And a lot of times, propaganda, he's saying, and the desire for people to flatter others with propaganda or to be flattered by it, gets into our reports, right? And it becomes what we think of as history.